Hey everybody, welcome to this latest episode of The Grind. Super excited to be sitting across the table today from Luke Pruitt and to have my co-host with me, Katie Moore. Hey and guys. Yeah, hey. Well, everybody, welcome back from summer and welcome to fall. And we're excited, Luke, to hear some of your story and what you do in Memphis and just, yeah, what all you get to see from your seat uh, there in Crosstown and across our city. And so, uh, uh, yeah. Welcome, man. So honored to be on the grind. Great to see y'all. <laughs> you belong here. You've got your Memphis hat. You've got your Serb 901 shirt. That's you, right. What'd your bracelet say? Memphis is That's right. Now, now is the time. Now Memphis is the is time. The place. Memphis is the place. David Montague so dropped good. that in a Memphis teacher residency video in 2012, and right. it lives on in bracelets to this day. But <laughs> yeah, really so excited to be here. I'm going to have a lot of bass in my voice. I get a cold as Memphis transitions from summer to fall every year, so it's yeah. with me. But so yeah. pumped to be here. We're in the middle of, we just got back from Knoxville recruiting Memphians back home. We're headed mm. to Atlanta to be at some HBCUs this weekend. So really cool timing for us to think about why we're bringing people to Memphis, why we want people to stay in Memphis and what the future of the city is. Good. Well, can't wait to get into all that. Before we do that, tell us some of your story. Tell us growing up. I know you extend uh, your passion for Memphis to well into uh, rural Arkansas and the greater Mid-South. And I know that's some of your roots, but uh, yeah, tell our audience kind of some of your journey your story growing up yeah so I, I i think about memphis as the capital of the delta because it it really was that for me growing up i grew up in a town called blyville arkansas small town life everybody grows up thinking they're going to be president because they're told they're going to be that and you don't recognize until you think through the numbers of like not everybody in my generation can be president but <laughs> loved growing up in blyville but the dominant themes of my childhood were penny hardaway right he's mm -hmm. playing for the tigers and then the orlando magic I have vivid memories of going to miss robinson's class in fourth grade sneaking away to watch espn update so i could talk to her about what was happening with Penny and then the Wolf Chase Mall, right? It was, it was, I was born in 83, Good so I'm deal. right on the cusp Big of being a millennial. Deal. So in the nineties, you had to get over to American Eagle and Old Navy and all the cutting edge uh, trends of the day. And so, you know, kind of growing up in an area era of suburban expansion and the internet wasn't the dominant theme of the day yet, but uh, access to cities through interstate and that kind of thing made Memphis culture more explosive than ever before during that time. But Memphis has always been the dominant themes for the areas of the country I care the most about, which is West Tennessee, East Arkansas, and North Mississippi. And so I very much feel like I grew up a Memphis kid, even though I was in East Arkansas. And then uh, went to college at Union University in Jackson, Tennessee, flipped a coin between there and the University of Arkansas. And um, really thankful it landed on heads and ended up at Union and actually stayed in higher ed for six years after graduating. And so we spent 10 years at Union uh, recruiting first and then walking with students in, in student life. Okay. So that definitely explains kind of your heart for Jackson and that greater area. One of the ways Memphis was described to me early on when I first moved here back in 2003 was it's the capital of a state that doesn't exist. Yes, exactly. And that is super yeah. true. Yeah. Like Eastern Arkansas yeah. and West yeah. Tennessee and Northern Mississippi Strong and even circle. some Southern Missouri consider Memphis their capital. Yes, and yeah, yes. back to school shopping, prom night, you know, all that kind of stuff happens. Yeah. As, as Memphis goes, those regions go. And so the creative innovations that are happening here spill out mm. into other places. You know, I think about all the innovation happening in education in Memphis has affected my hometown. There's a KIPP school in Blyville. Wow. There's That's no way awesome. that would be there if KIPP hadn't come to Memphis first. Yeah. And so we think about Memphis as a national incubator for moving to bigger markets. So what works in Memphis could work on a bigger scale in Chicago or New York, 
But in a smaller scale, it pours out within 18 months. You know, an innovation happens here and six months later, it's being copied somewhere else. Wow. So it's That's really, really kind of cool. cool. Yeah. So that higher education, were you pursuing the law degree at that point? Yeah. The union? Yeah. So, man, interesting. Some thoughts on being 20 for those who are uh, in their 20s right now. Uh, my executive director and boss, John Carroll, always talks about putting in your 10, you mm -hmm. know, and so you should put yourself uh, in a place. JB, as John's mentor, this may actually have come through you, but um, put yourself in a place where you can encounter a lot of stress, so that you can learn how to deal with greater and greater stress. I'm at a place now where I have three kids and a marriage of 12 years and I manage a lot of people on a big budget and a lot more stress than I had in my 20s. Um, but I took on a ton of stress through jobs that weren't always the most glamorous. Mm -hmm. I love to tell people I was making 23,000 at 29, heading on my second kid, you oh. know? And I just didn't realize, cause I loved my work, that that was kind of the situation I was in. So the transition to law school very much came from, I need to make some money gotcha. <laughs> and we've got to have a way to do that. And wanting to go on an adventure with my wife. We've known each other since we were 14. Uh -uh. Uh, we met at a Billy Graham crusade. She doesn't remember uh -uh. meeting me there. She remembers uh -uh. meeting me at a church lock-in where she thought I was high. I just had an eye infection, was it? And, um, and so we've known each other for a long time. She went to Union, um, high school sweethearts, best friends. And so after being at Union for such a long time, taking on lots of stress, working in jobs that we loved, but needing kind of a big adventure, it made a ton of sense to go to law school. And so I was going to apply to schools all over the country, but we'd been really involved in Young Life Ministry, relationally walking with people on a one-on-one -on -one level, knowing who they were. And I was at a charity basketball fundraiser uh, for one of my Young Life guys who his dad had been in an accident and just really felt like, man, I'm never going to be in rooms where I know as many people as I know in this room, you know? And so wow. staying in the Delta, staying in this region, continuing to walk relationally while we expanded our vocational growth made a ton of sense. So I just applied to Memphis, put all my eggs in that basket and thankfully did well enough to get in. And so started law school in 2012 for very pragmatic purposes of uh, wanting to make more money and ended up having my life changed during mm. that time. The biggest way was falling in love with Memphis in a more nuanced way. I, mm. I always said growing up that Memphis is like your mama, like you love her, but you don't expect anyone else to. Mm. And I was meeting all these kids from Birmingham and Atlanta and all over, and they loved mama, like they loved mm. Memphis. And so I started learning about downline. I started learning about other uh, exciting things happening in the city. And so we just fell in love with Memphis in a new way while I was also getting a great education in law. So mm -hmm. it was a cool decision uh, that was made for uh, financial reasons. And that was the, the first end. time y'all had actually lived here? It was. So we actually commuted. We we stayed Whoa. in Jackson. Yeah. I mean, this this just speaks to how much impact Memphis has on a regional level. We, we were commuting the whole time. But uh, some of my best friends went to uh, you know, churches and were parts of organizations here in the city during that time. And so we just started getting Memphis under our skin so much so that by my third year of law school, I'd kind of gotten so passionate about the missions of choose 901 and I love Memphis blogs and all that stuff that I'd started a replica of it in Jackson called our Jackson home hmm. um, that I started with a guy I went to church with and it took off and went well. Once again, people copying what Memphians do. Mm -hmm. And I'd taken a job at a law firm, my mom or my wife, my mom, my wife was running um, a courtroom there in Jackson. And so our life was kind of set. We kind of knew what we were going to do mm -hmm. for the next 30 years. 
And in the midst of all that, I was introduced to John Carroll, who founded City Leadership, and uh, he began to recruit us to come and join the mission of recruiting other people to Memphis because he saw our passion for the city and how we were falling in love with it. And so in the summer of 2015, I walked away from a law job and April walked away from running a courtroom and we moved to Memphis and moved to downtown Memphis with two kids. They were six and four at the time and um, have gone on the greatest adventure of our lives over the last five years. That's awesome. Well, tell us about what drew you to city leadership specifically, what the job was that uh, that really lined up with your passion and skill set and kind of help everybody understand what you've been doing and kind of what you do now uh, at city leadership. So big thanks to John Bryson for founding city leadership. <laughs> he is uh, a big part of why it came to be along with John Carroll. So it's founded in 2010, one staff member, and now we've grown to a place heading into 2020 where we're almost 20 staff members. And what drew me to it early on was the fact that it was bringing so many different people from so many different skill sets into community to do work that makes a difference. That was a huge thing. The first time I visited the office, a friend of mine had emailed John, connections matter so deeply for those of you navigating your career. I, I, I was doing this blog thing and a guy asked if I knew John Carroll and I said no. And he said, he's running Choose 901. I was like, that's everything I want to do in life. And so he connected us and uh, John said, I can meet with you today. I couldn't that day. And so he couldn't meet with me for two months. Hmm. So another kind of tip for young folks navigating their career, when somebody puts you off for two months, they really are that busy. <laughs> so finally we got together and I walked in the city leadership offices for the first time. And it was just this incredible picture. It looked like MTV real world. It, it's open office space and it's beautiful. Really 12 is. people were, were crowded around a computer. They were doing this community t-shirt sale, releasing these t-shirts and had thousands of people logging onto this website. And it was you know, just so much racial diversity and gender diversity in that room. And I met a digital strategist and a web developer and somebody who focuses on writing and and people who are recruiting teachers. And I was like, what is going on? This feels like what work should be. And so I was immediately intrigued from the very beginning. And then uh, civic advocacy is just at the very heart of what I love. I, I think one of the greatest things we can do is uh, care about our community in meaningful ways. And so the fact that John and city leadership were taking people with particular skill sets, let's say that's designing websites or um, being really great at speaking to people and unleashing that into the community to advocate not for our organization of city leadership, but to advocate for other organizations. And for Memphis. And for Memphis was the most life altering thing to see possible and, and the kind of thing that I'd want to be a part of. Mm. Yeah. Really cool. That's awesome. Yeah, one of the things you mentioned, the civic advocacy, and in that article that I read about you, it said that you wanted to combine your two passions, one of them being civic advocacy and one of them being organizational excellence. Yeah. So what what has that looked like for you in this role? Where have you found it, you know, yeah. since you saw a new way of defining that when you saw city leadership, what, what does that look like for you? That's the best question I've ever been asked. Oh, stop. I love it. No, I'm That's serious. That's not true. Well, I've been wanting to give this answer to a question for like a decade. So oh, yay. I'm ready Please for this. Go for it. So I, I really want to be a part of two things that are completely paradoxical. One, I want to be a part of revolutions. You know, I just, I think we should constantly be upending the way the world works. Um, but I'm an institutionalist. I really think that, uh, you know, businesses and colleges and city governments make a difference. And that 
when they're healthy and lasting and going well and having leadership transfers and uh, budgets balanced and belonging, then the world's a better place. And so how can we be revolutionary and institutional in our thinking? And so that's where I'm trying to live with believing in civic advocacy, believing that we shouldn't be complacent with the way things are, that mm-hmm. we should continue to advance a world that too often times is structurally racist or only gives advantages to the few and that we should open that and expand that and give more opportunity. But at the same time, the best way to do that is through organizational excellence, is through mm-hmm. having accountability, is through uh, orderliness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's been really cool to get to be a part of a culture trying to balance that, trying to um, up in the status quo, trying to uh, move schools and nonprofits to greater levels of advocacy for the, the city, not mm-hmm. believing that just rolling balls out in a parking lot or just having anybody in the classroom is enough, being revolutionary in that way that we mm-hmm. rethink things. But at the same time, believing that the way that can happen is through data and through uh, intentional budget expenditures and through intentional conversations uh, and through approaching things in a way of, of great excellence. The last thing I'll say on this is too oftentimes as a society, we're fine with uh, Apple, you know, as in the company Apple or Snapchat having the best of buildings or the best of people or the best of budgets. We don't question that at all. But with our nonprofits, too oftentimes we're like, man, let's give it the least of these. And that's just not the way it should work. The way we can be revolutionary is through well-equipped nonprofits. And Mm -hmm. so I think nonprofits that care for children and the elderly and the refugee upends the way of the world that ignores those people groups. Um, But it's only at its best when it functions in the same way that Apple puts out its best new product or Snapchat puts out its best new filter. And so holding that tension. And just a follow up question with that. I mean, so much of that is I mean, your focus includes so much recruitment. So obviously people are a huge part of that puzzle. So do you find that one of the ways when you're when you're looking at kind of an idea on paper comparing institutions with revolution and what that could look like is is it mainly people that are going to that are going to fill that gap and take an institution with some rough edges and clean it up as opposed to just budgets and just, you know, policies. Yeah. I think it's both. And I want to recruit people into positions where they'll be well-equipped. So it is easy for me to go to Morehouse along with my incredible team of joy and Keenan and Travis and Lauren and Jeff and, um, sell a Morehouse man on coming to Memphis Mm -hmm. when they get to live in the Crosstown Concourse, Mm. get a master's degree paid for, get paid in one of the highest paid school districts in the entire country uh, and give their life away to a meaningful cause of urban education for five years. Does that make sense? And so it's finding the right person at the right place, Mm -hmm. University of Memphis, um, you know, skipped college altogether and they're just working in the workforce, finding that person, but then putting them at streets or putting that mm-hmm. at them at MTR. Uh, but having MTR and streets ready for them. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah, so if that that's same exactly Moorhead, right. um, uh, Morehouse teacher comes but has a horrible principal. Right. Like, exactly. Right. It, We're not going to keep it. Defeats the purpose. Yeah, right. they're not going to stay. And yes. so, yeah. So it's building the institution to be ready for the people so that when, we, when the people show up the systems are in place. Which is what I love about cities, right? Is that there's funding available to be able to unleash people. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's 
got to be a both and. But I, I was telling you all right before we started taping that I wanted to, I recruited out of college and wanted to run away from it as fast as I could. But mm-hmm. ironically, I got my dream job because of the recruiting experience, mm-hmm. you know. And so now I'm completely convinced that asking people to come and join a movement is one of the most sacred things you can do on behalf mm-hmm. of a person. Mm-hmm. And then oftentimes it opens the door for them to like give their lives away and live a meaningful life and make a difference for others in ways they never would have thought of mm-hmm. if they hadn't been asked to do that. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned early on, y'all just got back from Knoxville and doing a choose nine. So, so walk our people through like exactly why you went there. That's exactly what I was going to ask. What you did there yeah. and and what was what were you trying to do and what did you do and like what does that mean? And that why y'all... you went there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'd love to know all yeah. of that. So we're a nonprofit consulting firm, which always sounds fake and made up and like it wouldn't exist. But but the reason why Memphis can have a nonprofit consulting firm is because since 2014, we're on record, you can look this up in publications, we're the most generous city in the country. I quoted it to somebody yesterday. Very and proud so of that stat. There is more per capita giving to nonprofits in Memphis than any other city in the entire country. And the other basis of that is we have more nonprofits per capita than any other organization in the city. And so if we're gonna have this money being given away and we're gonna have these organizations and somebody should serve them in a high, uh, profile a, a high quality way to come alongside them because they can't afford a graphic designer they can't afford a website and so we provide those services alongside them on the recruiting side of things we do that through a number of campaigns one called choose 901 a lot of folks are really familiar with that an encouraging story about choose 901 it was started in 2012 the entire vision was to be external to the city and so after a year had about a thousand likes on facebook i'm pretty sure uh, one of y'all's dogs could get a thousand likes on facebook after a year you know now, five, six, seven years later, it's one of the biggest newsletter, Instagram, website presence in the entire country um, when it comes to the type of work that we're doing. The influence is, is crazy. Over 50,000 newsletter subscribers, 80,000 Instagram followers. So that influence was made possible, though, by Memphians picking up the banner and advocating for the city. So we sell T-shirts. Um, because we want Memphians to go out and rep this city. And yeah. so it's one of my favorite things about Memphians is, is just how proud they are of mm-hmm. where they're from and how they go out and sell that. And so Choose 901 is a marketing campaign to funnel people back into our partner program. So that's uh, Teach for America Memphis, that's Memphis Teacher Residency, that's City Year, that's Impact Tennessee, that's Service Over Self. And so we're looking to uh, have a place that people can go to understand how to enjoy and invest their lives so that those organizations can take care of being experts in home repair or um, education, those types of things. But it's also a movement for Memphians to be passionate about. So we go places to be passionate in that way, but we also have campaigns, Teach 901, which recruits educators, and Serve 901, which recruits service trips. Over 1,200 college students a year come and serve the city. But the biggest core piece of our work and where Choose 901 has changed the most is it's moved from just being a marketing campaign though that marketing campaign in and of itself is a a huge contribution to the city, but it's moved into caring for particular people. Because what we found over and over again is, it's awesome if we get a recruit from Blyville or Jackson or Asheville, it's awesome. So great to get those folks here. We have tons from Stillwater and Kansas City and all over the country, but it's the most meaningful when a Memphis kid returns home or a Memphis kid stays here. And the future of Memphis, the greatest good for Memphis is when Memphians own the city. 
Mm. Um, and so the Choose 901 alumni campaign, which is led by Joy Taylor and Keenan Lowry and Travis Tennant, uh, recruits back and retains students who graduate from several of our partner schools. So Soulsville, um, New Hope, Collegiate, several others. And so they're working aggressively to connect with those folks and, and give them an invitation back to the city. Because so oftentimes I, I think about um, Princess, somebody who just came back and is uh, working with City Year, that when we first went and visited her in Knoxville, she had no desire to come home to Memphis. The, the greatest good for her uh, was leaving Memphis, right? That's the sign that you've made it. Because she doesn't even understand the full scope of the city she's from, right? Because totally. she was 16, 17 when she left. And so we're inviting her in to understand Memphis on a more holistic scale, to come and work at our partner organizations, to intern with FedEx, to go and enjoy uh, you know, the balcony at Old Dominic and see the river in that way, and invite them in to take ownership over the future of the city. So when you go to Knoxville, you're specifically inviting those alumni of those partner schools who yeah. are going to school at Knoxville and throwing a tailgate for them yeah. and continuing to build a relationship with them and casting a vision for them to get the best and most education they can and come on back to the 901. And that was so concise. It. That's exactly right. Hmm. That is so cool. And y'all so do that on how many different campuses? Like man, this it's year a alone? lot. We, we uh, focus on two types of campuses. One, regional schools, yeah. right? The, the greatest amount of talent influx we get is within three hours. Okay. So the Arkansas states, the Starkvilles, the Tennessee states, and then also HBCUs, right? Memphis is most diverse city in the country, over 70% African-American. And so uh, black excellence that's come out of Memphis has changed the world, whether it's Robert Church, the first African-American multimillionaire, or so many leaders that have come out of the city. And so, so many HBCUs are full filled with Memphis talent, whether that's Howard or Hampton or uh, Tennessee State. And so focusing on those schools is, is really high priority needs. I'd say somewhere between 30 and 40 campuses a year. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah, it's really cool. And it How all started. How long has that alumni program been going on? Yeah, so um, 2016 very were the cool. very infant starting. It. So it kicked off big. I mean, y'all have been. Yeah, it's been amazing. It started with an event and that event went well. And then um, a New Hope alum came on our radar who I've mentioned named Joy and she's an unbelievable talent. And so kind of started running with the program and it's we're over a thousand alumni now. That's awesome. And it's cool because that work has come out of trying to solve the teacher need. Yeah. Uh, in the city. And so we want to provide a third of the teachers uh, in classrooms uh, in urban wow. education each year. And so that's where a lot of the learning how to travel recruit, how to market specifically happened. And so now we're kind of taking that into the work that that we do with alumni. But man, some of these kids are, are the sharpest kids I've ever met in my entire life. I mean, I the kinds of kids that are coming out of Memphis schools um, can change the city forever. It's mm. we've just got to keep the talent here and keep it coming back. And it's not only them, it's their friends that they're right. making um, when they go off to college, getting those friends here and getting them believing and investing their talent here will change us for the better forever. So obviously you've got great hope for the city and and great belief in our future. and talking to two who would totally agree with you but yeah. how would you describe that renaissance that you envision for our city yeah for the next few years man i think we've been experiencing it the last decade i didn't move here full-time until 2015 but in many ways i'm so envious of people who moved here in 2005 you know because mm -hmm. 
so much of the investment that happened in 2005 has now come full circle, mm. you know? And so I think really so many of the amazing things that are happening in Memphis today, whether that's business development throughout the city or that's nonprofit innovation, really was put into place in the late 90s, early 2000s when really generous people began to think creatively about giving to the city. And so I think we're already reaping a lot of that. Um, but it, it's like dominoes, right? Mm -hmm. Like once you start hitting it, it can expand into all these lanes. And I, I think it's, I, I want my boys to be a part of the next 30 years in Memphis. My, my kids right now are nine, seven, and three. And so I really feel like um, they can be a part of a city on the rise in some really amazing ways. But anything that happens in 2022, uh, whether that's a Soulsville alum being able to become an executive director of a nonprofit or whatever, really that that infrastructure was put into place back in 2008. And so totally. I think you see this when you drive around the city, whether it's Memphis Rocks or, you know, I mean, just some of the most well-equipped nonprofits in the entire you know, city, I think about going to MAM gyms or whatever. It's like some of the most passionate, innovative people. And, and so it's really cool to think about where that can go. I think. And, and I mean, to your point, like the alums choosing here has had to have the systems in place that have been rolling and, and have already begun. Exactly. And, and really a lot of that work has been made possible because of people from around the country choosing to come here and invest their twenties in meaningful ways. Mm -hmm. And so Memphis had the yellow fever crisis happen in the 19th century. I often say, you know, New York was going to be New York. If you've seen Hamilton, yeah. we got to hang out with the cast while they were here, which was unbelievable. Oh, but where? You, where you, did y'all hang? They came to our Fresh office. Yeah. Okay, can we talk about that the rest of the time? <laughs> it was unbelievable. My friend believes that Lynn is like the Shakespeare of our generation, so yeah. he just follows them around. So they all came. They That's loved amazing. Memphis. They're still wearing their Choose 901 tees all over. Oh, that makes me really happy. But, uh, so if you've seen Hamilton, you know that New York stole the cannons, they won the war, they get to be New York. But Memphis was on pace to be the second largest city in the country. Right. And after yellow fever hit, two amazing things happened. One, it became a place of African-American opportunity in a way that no city had ever been before. So from Orange Mound being African-American homeowned neighborhoods uh, to businesses on Bill Street and South Main being possible that had never been possible before. One of the biggest things is yellow fever was cured because people moved here from all over the country to make a difference. And so, so oftentimes the really amazing education that a kid's getting in the classroom is made possible because of these folks moving here from all over the country to be mm. able to provide that and invest in that. My kids are a byproduct of all these amazing people coming and caring for church health in the well. You know, mm -hmm. my, my kids go to well and they're cared for by kids from all over. I say kids, adults. And so those folks are yellow fever bearers in some yeah. ways, you know, the incredible difference that St. Jude has made taking childhood leukemia from claiming 97% of lives to now 93% of people survive are the same byproduct of people moving here to make a difference. And so I think the difference that alumni are going to be able to make are a byproduct of people who moved here from outside to make a difference. So it's this really beautiful cycle that really of, of renovation way. and hope. Yeah, yeah. And so one of the things we talk about is during the yellow fever epidemic, Memphis became known as a city of death, mm -hmm. you know. But because of people who were able to do courageous work together, it became a city of life, mm -hmm. you know, from the amazing medical innovation we have here. And so 
if we can solve, you know, childhood leukemia on a right. mass scale, then my gosh, we can teach kids to read in every neighborhood. Oh, right? and that's so, so beautiful. That's the next era for Memphis. Memphis is in a great place with business expansion. It's in a great place with nonprofit innovation. But can it be open to every citizen in a meaningful way across mm. the economic landscape? And so that's the next big challenge. Mm. So, yeah. The last thing I'll say on that rant is there is no Memphis. There's only a confederation of neighborhoods, whether that's the Heights or Frazier or Orange Mound or Germantown or Cordova or wherever. It's these neighborhoods that come together to, to make a big difference. And so I think the more we can get into that micro scale, and it's why I love the fellowship model outpost, right? The more we can care for these individual neighborhoods, the more we can become a city of a million people that, that make a mm. difference. I find it kind of endearing the way you keep referring to these people who are changing our city as kids because you don't really seem that old to me yeah. but um, 36 <laughs> feels really old when you have yeah. three young boys at home that's right um but what what do you see in them what is our landscape of kind of 20s yeah you know how does that and especially in your workforce and in those of you yeah. you've mentioned a few who are really exciting but mm-hmm. what do you see as kind of Man. A few generalities. Yeah, I, I am so optimistic and proud of the generation of people that are coming out of the city. I think um, there's a really deep belief that wasn't always here, and it's being led by young people. Mm. And so oftentimes, um, if you talk to a Memphian who's 65, they might have a negative view of the city, even though they built the city, right? Yeah. You talk to Memphians who are 16, it's it's pretty positive. And so really trying to give ownership to that vision across the city into every single neighborhood. And so I think so much of being able to make a difference in your community starts with believing that you matter and that your community matters. Mm-hmm. And so I see that existing a ton. And I think it's been made possible by a lot of articulators of why that does matter. I think mm-hmm. Choose 901 is one of them. And I can brag about that because its megaphone was huge. By the time I came on staff, it was already speaking out. But there's a, a ton of organizations and a ton of people that have been speaking the good news of this community for a long time. And it's rubbed off on young people. And so I think the other big thing is uh, a lot of people who are in their 20s grew up in a time of economic crisis um, in their teenage years and saw parents go through a lot of economic questions. And so because of the Internet and accessibility of information and because of being exposed to a lot of economic trouble at times in their homes, um, there's a preparedness that I think is really unique and cool to Gen Z folks that are mm. coming up right now. And so we and don't maybe start, a freedom. Exactly. We don't start recruiting in February anymore for a program that begins in June. We start recruiting for a program in August that wow. begins in June because there is a freedom to find information um, and there is a desire for them to be more prepared. And mm. I think that could spell really good things for our economy. Mm. Um, if we get folks who are really uh, intentional about more successful careers at younger ages. And so. And maybe redefining success. Exactly. And so. Like you did with your family. Yes, absolutely. So as FedEx Logistics looks to move into downtown, how can we fill those offices with as many young people as possible advancing their careers at really young ages? Mm. So it's an exciting time in a lot of ways. A lot of. The, the problem of progress is it leads to bigger problems than before, mm-hmm. not bigger problems in that like uh, the severity is great, bigger problems in that they're more complex. Right. And so 
with momentum, with energy, uh, with growth comes greater complexity. And so I think figuring out what to do with all the talent that has moved to the city and how you move through your career here and how you're invited in in deeper ways at younger ages are really complex questions that people at for-profits and nonprofits are gonna have to wrestle with. And so we wanna create that problem for them. We want the problem to be not how can I get talented people in a seat, but oh my gosh, if I let him in, then I have to reject them. You know, that's the problem we wanna create. And I think there's momentum towards that. We've seen evidence that there is. And so that's kind of the goal. Awesome. Well, what are some of the, just as a a team, as a broader team, what are some of the things city leadership is wrestling with beyond the, and, and trying to tackle and, and trying to help with beyond just recruitment. Yeah. I, John was on an earlier, John Carroll was on an earlier, uh, the ground podcast, I think and talked yeah. a little bit about this, but there was very much, it was startup culture and it was, we're going to go hard for 10 years. Yeah. And so there was a vision that even in 2015 was still being talked about. If we're going to go hard until 2020 and yeah. see the difference we can make. And the we, beautiful, we originally started dreaming of, of an, an intentional supernova. Yeah. Like we would cease to exist on purpose in 2020. We'd talk about 2020. Yeah, yes. that's exactly right. Now I remember that. Wow. And, <laughs> and here we are. Here that's we are. one of the things that actually drew me to the organization. So I was like, man, they're talking about things in ways other people are just talking about how can we keep the lights on? They're right. talking about Survival. how can we achieve mission? Yeah. So city leadership is so wrapped up into the fabric of the city that it feels like it'll outsurvive us all. It, it feels like there's going to be a city leadership in 2090. Yeah. You know, that's, that'd be the hope and dream because of how important uh, nonprofit care and consulting and leadership and recruiting is and, and the fact that it can be owned and taken on by people from our city. And so, um, man, there's so many big projects. I, I know there's a lot of thought towards what the next 10 years is going to look like in meaningful ways. And, um, we're bringing in more and more college students to serve the city every year. And so how do we convert more and more of those folks into people who stay long term? And then what does it mean to have not a thousand alumni, but 8,000 alumni from our partner schools? And how do we continue to hand the keys to them yeah. metaphorically in the form of uh, high quality jobs? And how do we equip and train uh, and provide you know consistent marketing that tells the story of Memphis in a meaningful way to more and more people because uh, we don't want Memphis to be the best kept secret anymore. Mm. We, we believe that this place is, is special in significant ways. And there's a lot of growth stats in the last decade that indicate that more and more people are catching that and getting it. Um, but, but Memphis could continue to use high quality people caring for it and investing in it and walking in it. And so thinking about how to get that story out over the next 10 years is, is a big goal. The beautiful thing is we've built a megaphone that's bigger than it's ever been before. And so there's more opportunity to use it in meaningful ways. And there's more partners involved than ever before. And so how do we steward and leverage that in the Mm -hmm. best way? That's really cool. Man, really fun visiting with you about this. Uh, just leave us with some, tell us some things your family enjoys doing in the city, places y'all enjoy going, favorite yeah. restaurants y'all enjoy eating at. Tell we us how, lived, the, how the Pruitts do Memphis. We lived downtown for two years because my office was there. And then we messed up and had a third kid. I mean, had the joy <laughs> of having a third kid. And so we moved to Midtown. We love it. Um, we live on Court Avenue, southernmost point of Evergreen. I just love I can bike everywhere. So I, I bike to where we work now, the Crosstown Concourse, and 
biked to restaurants. Midtown Memphis feels like the smallest town I've ever lived in. And I'm from mm-hmm. a town of 16,000 people, but every business is local and you feel like you know everybody. And so, um, man, we love so much about the city. The concourse has changed our lives in a number of ways that we can kind of work and play in the same place. Um, but I think more than anything, kind of uh, walking alongside people from different neighborhoods throughout the city and like beginning to know and understand and taste the culinary flavor of, of you know, mom and pop sh- shops all over has, has been really fun. The biggest thing I'll say is like, you can't ever eat local enough here, right? Like just when you think uh, uh, Central's local, you find out about Four Way. You know? yeah. So uh, Four Way is Dr. King's favorite restaurant. It's unbelievable. The catfish is yeah. so killer, but um, we love to explore the city and are so thankful for a, a job that allows us to do that. It's awesome. Well, Luke, thanks for spending some time with us. Thanks for what you do in our city and for loving and serving our city so well. And man, we're proud of you and proud of y'all's work. And uh, can't wait to see what's coming around the corner. So thankful for y'all and thankful for fellowship. All right. Y'all have a great week. Hope to see you soon. What's up, guys? My name is Seth. I am one of the pastors here at Fellowship Memphis, and I'd like to talk to you about another podcast in the Fellowship Podcast Network called Formation. Formation is just a podcast where Pastor Claude and I sit down each week and we explore various avenues of connecting with the Lord. We call these things disciplines, or we call these things practices. Uh, they help to form us into Christ likeness. And so, a lot of us, when we think of formation, we think prayer or reading the Bible, but Seldom do we actually think of celebration or secrecy or accountability, these things as being part of our formation in Christ. And so each week, Claude and I take a single uh, discipline or practice, and we put that into practice. We describe our experience with that discipline, and then we preview another discipline to try that week. We hope you can come over and check that out on the Fellowship Podcast Network. It's called Formation. You can find it in any of your podcast apps, and we hope this podcast can help you as you continue in your walk with the Lord and exploring all the different ways that God's given us to connect with Him.